Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So we're going to talk today about the the US and China and commodities. So starting with the US, halfway through the year, it's Independence Day, time of celebration, and it's a celebration also of some pretty impressive economic data across a number of fronts. So Robert, to kick off, what does this mean for our perhaps base case of recession in the US in coming months? How do you feel about that now? Yeah, so... I think broadly coming into the year, base case scenario was recession in many different regions. The difficulty was, of course, when's the timing and how deep it's going to be. And I think the summary, if I was to do one sentence summary, is for the US recession in particular is it's delayed, but it's still coming would be the um, would be the short punchline. Yes, the data has been strong at the start of the year, and it's certainly been stronger in the US than most people were, were expecting. Um, so I think that's the good news so far. And what's what's behind that to a great degree, I think where the biggest positive surprise was really on um, personal consumption. So the consumer was a lot stronger than people were expecting. And when we look, what was the cause behind it? It wasn't even the spending down of some uh, still maintained COVID savings. It was more actually income levels were pretty strong. So strong income levels from a still relatively strong labour market and consumers are able to spend. And that that positive surprise was a big part of the positive impulse to growth. I think the other part was obviously there were lots of fears surrounding the banking system. And when we look at what the Fed's actions were, the other positive impulse was really there was quite a lot of liquidity pumped into the system that the QT that was expected didn't happen uh, and Fed balance sheet was a, a bit more forgiving than maybe it could have been otherwise so the benefits of extra liquidity and the benefits of uh, the consumer is really what we've seen so far but and that's where we come to the the, the main uh, part of it is recession is, is not gone forever because when we think where are we in this economic cycle it's still long in the tooth in that unemployment levels are very low. So we can't be starting a new economic cycle. This is a new bull market with employment levels this good because the danger is we're we're still, we're benefiting from disinflation at the moment. That's been one benefit so far this year. But if economic growth were to really take off again, there's not that much spare capacity to, to absorb um, the growth. So the pressures on inflation would restart again. And that's a bit of the conundrum at the moment is the better economic growth is short term. Yes, it's good and it may delay the recession, but it does mean that we're going to see tighter Federal Reserve policy. And we're already hearing that sort of where rates may be in the next couple of sessions, we might see some some rate hikes. And that's the difficulty you have for, for a market like this really is better growth actually means tighter policy, which then will um, press uh, lead to the recession in the end. So that that's one of, of the difficulties. And I think the second difficulty to talk about really is when we're considering the labour market, 
why is it been so rosy um and yet growth has been slowing and it's because we're at that uh, the phillips curve as people talk about in terms of growth and, uh, and unemployment we're at that kinked part where actually you can uh, it, it, what absorbs the slowing growth is not suddenly unemployment rates going up but actually the labor market was so tight what it means is there are fewer job job openings and that the wage growth can start to absorb some of the um some of the slack so that's the good news you're in that part of the curve the problem is when you just get down to inflation being around two percent you get to the other part of the curve where actually slowing growth as interest rates keep going up can then lead to um, unemployment rates starting to to go up faster and that that's the bit that we worry about that when when unemployment rates go up half a percent to one percent that leads you to recession and the risk is still there so the, there is heightened risk of recession in the US for the next 12 months um, so we haven't got away with it completely and the other the, the other aspect to it really is it's it's been this distortion of covid data is why it's been so hard to time when the recession will come because manufacturing has been slowing very fast when we look at the service sector that's obviously been much better and the same regionally yes the us has been strong but as we'll perhaps talk about a bit later china's been slow growth in germany's teaching around zero percent so i think yes the us surprised the upside but overall the, the sort of case of where we are in the cycle and what we may see for the rest of the year and coming to next year, um, I think remains pretty much intact. So we've talked uh, about how it's a question of both the timing of the recession and the depth of the recession when it actually arrives. You've sort of been hinting, I think, Robert, when we've had these conversations, that there might be something of a correlation between the the length of the delay and then the depth of the subsequent recession in the sense that if the recession is delayed because growth turns out to be more robust and more resilient than perhaps we'd imagined and therefore the Fed will need to tighten whether it does it through interest rates on their own or actually switch from QE to QT and do some um, quantitative tightening. Their actions in response to better than expected economic growth might mean that we have a deeper steeper or longer recession when it actually comes is is that is that a reasonable view to take do you think that the longer it's delayed the worse it's going to be um i think it does raise the chance of not necessarily a longer recession but it could be a, a more nasty response so it could be a harder landing um, exactly if you delay it and also markets if we build up the pressure of over exuberance when, when it comes the the sort of hard landing could could be a bit worse than than is expected. Having said that, I suppose growth has been so good so far that the chances of a more uh, softer recession is still intact. So provided the the, the Fed doesn't overhype too much, there is this chance of the recession being relatively benign, even though it could last a bit longer. So I think more likely, if it happens sooner, it's a shallower and maybe a more protracted recession. Whereas if you wait a bit longer, to, to your point, it could be a bit harder. But the harder recession may may actually be um, a quicker recession in many ways. So the, the the length, I think, of the recession may be sort of inversely connected to how, how steep it is. And equally, I think the other point I was wanted to say about US growth is even some of the data, as we said, the hard data, the manufacturing service data is telling a different story because we've still got that overhang of covid but even when we look at GDP, so production data against income data, G, um, gross domestic income, they tell a different story at the moment and they've diverged. 
Um, so income is actually declining. G uh, so when we look at that side of the economy, it does look more recessionary already. And typically, it's the average which gives you an idea of where growth actually is. So I think the data anyway is hard to, to look through. So it's going to be hard to sort of pass where exactly where we are. But the idea this slowdown is coming and it depends on the reaction of policy as to how severe the recession could be. I think a, a, a good good uh, things to watch for in the in the coming six to twelve months. So let's switch to markets. So if one was to grossly oversimplify, twenty twenty two was a year when uh, interest rates went up, bonds therefore uh, fell in value, and that general rise in the discount rate caused there to be a uh, fall in equity prices as well. So it was a, both markets were down. And then you switch into this year, or maybe the little bit tail end of last year, and you've had something of a divergent picture where bonds have tended to say, oh gosh, things really aren't as good as you think they are. And look, we're going to invert the yield curve just to make that clear. And yet equities uh, when looked at at the headline level, have been tended to point in a different direction. There's been this disagreement or dissonance, as I think we talked about in one of these podcasts. Where are we now? Are we seeing more alignment between these two markets or are they still pointing in slightly different directions? So I suppose if we take them in turn, equity markets are definitely quite rosy at the moment overall. That, that's been the signal. Now, the market was quite narrow and a lot of it was driven by AI for most of the year. But there has been somewhat of a broadening out of that in, in June. So certainly risk sentiment is starting to come back. So equity markets giving a pretty buoyant view of the world and buoyant in the sense of we're going to get good growth and also the discount rate's not going to go up too much. So it's still holding on to that view that, that everything's going to go right is sort of justifying where a lot of prices are. Now, having said that, there are parts of the market like the US that are more expensive. And actually, some of the rest of the world, the prices are relatively undemanding. I mean, they're not screamingly cheap, but they're relatively undemanding. So the broad picture is certainly more rosy. Although if we look at emerging markets, and China in particular, actually, um, you're, you're pricing the difference in economic data that we're actually growth is surprised to the downside in China. And emerging markets uh, face some of uh, some of the pressures from financing costs in, in the dollar world as well. So there is a somewhat of a different viewpoint, but clearly equity is more buoyant. I think the bond market as well, it's a bit nuanced in the sense of really we're still range bound. So when we're looking at the, the long term rates in particular, we haven't broken out. And it's that fight between the two forces. Inflation is coming down. So there is this disinflationary impulse, which should be and the, the threat of recession, which should be acting as a good support for, for bonds and, and yields should be falling. But at the same time, actually, when you look through the data, there's still an element of stickiness to a lot of the inflation data, certainly the service sector data, and a risk that those wage inflation rates, the wage rates are actually going to be a bit more sticky as well, rather than prices. So maybe so far this year, it's been better than expected in that the pricing power of companies haven't been able to pass on as much of the, the cost to people. So that's been good for goods inflation coming down. But the wage inflation, again, relatively sticky. Uh, and that's the threat when we get into the second half of the year. So bonds, I suppose, are caught between those two sides. Recession set against actually maybe inflation is going to surprise to the upside and we're not pricing inflation. And that battle has not been really sort of fought yet or not, not really conclusively decided one way or the other. And I think that's going to be crucial for equities in that actually either direction could be pretty bad for equities. And that's where we get the resolution. So if 
we do enter into a recession and rates are coming down, actually, that's not you know, that's already fully baked in on the, the plus side and earnings, we're not priced in the earnings recession. So that'd be bad for equities. But the other way around, if growth is a bit more resilient, but unfortunately, financing costs go up and bonds start to go up, that would be bad for bonds and would be bad for equities because we're not priced in a higher cost of financing. So I still think we with that resolution uh, is still to come between the different markets. And when we see bond prices really break out one way or the other, that could be quite a conclusive moment for equities. But for the time being, there's still quite a lot of optimism, which we're seeing in in equity markets. So you mentioned China. Let's go to China now. And we've talked about this over the months. uh, And I guess prior to the uh, autumn last year, we were talking about the positive impact that would come from the elimination of China's pretty stringent COVID zero policies. and, And so it came to pass. They did reduce the restrictions they were putting on movement and activity. But we haven't had quite the oomph that I think we were all expecting for, expecting, or a number of us anyway, were were expecting. The, the, the date has been relatively weaker than anticipated. We've not really seen the impulse, perhaps, that we were expecting. And you continue to have these alarming whispers or Maybe they're louder than whispers coming from some of the over-leveraged real estate markets in China. So you're the Chinese policymakers. What do you do now? What are you expecting, Robert? Are you expecting them just to see it through or can we anticipate some renewed stimulus? So I think clearly there was a COVID bounce back, but the bounce back wasn't as as good as everyone uh, or a lot of people are anticipating. And now why is that? Well, firstly, the Chinese didn't shoot the bazooka like the rest of the world with COVID policy support. So very differently to the GFC when China did the massive amount of stimulus and the rest of the world benefited. This time round, the US, the West unleashed the wave of fiscal and monetary support. And the Chinese support was a lot more muted. So that's number one, point number one. Point number two, I suppose, without the welfare state, people are a bit more scarred actually coming back to normal. So there hasn't been that animal spirits are released of clearly there's been some consumption expenditure but but not as much so not only did they not not have the the wedge of savings that the rest of the world was given during covid which they could then spend so they didn't have that they were a bit more scarred and and there's a bit more precautionary savings um taking place at the moment and i think you mentioned ian quite rightly that the two big overhangs China has had a big build-up of debt, so it is a big issue. And also, the housing market, again, was maybe over too much. Property had been built. We've got this overhang of supply, and really, that was big overhang. So it's a bit like Japan at the end of the 90s. You have this, this overhang of a overheating property market, um, too much debt. And the third arrow, I suppose, is well, why, why hasn't there been the stimulus that we've seen so far? And I think the news, and certainly when we've been speaking to some of our managers, local managers, to hear the local information in China, I think the macro is likely to get worse before it gets better. So this idea that there'll be some policy support, yes, there will, but it's going to be quite restrained and maintain being restrained. So yes, policy rates have already been cut a tiny amount, and that's the direction of travel, but it's enough to prevent a massive decline in growth rather than to be a big stimulus. So I think keep that in mind. And why is that? Actually, the Chinese policymakers are quite logical in the way they think, and they like to play a long game. So 
their their idea really is um, not so much about short term growth. They don't have the same concerns about uh, the pressure in the ballot box to come. Um, so they can afford to play the long long game, and they are serious about transitioning the economy. So the idea they don't want to keep um, uh, stimulating the economy with ever more debt uh, and make the same mistake they feel they made slightly at the end of the GFC. So they don't want to increase lots of debt and have an infrastructure and property boom to support the economy. They want to transition more to domestic demand. So we're not going to see that big stimulus package. And they also they they very much believe. They don't want to introduce a welfare state like the West. They see that as a mistake. So those two factors are why we're likely to see this um, sort of restrained and lack of policy support, which I think is going to surprise some people and why we won't see that that support. Having said that, I think growth will get so bad that then they will eventually have to act. And so maybe it's more like October, November, later in the year, we might see a big bit more of a policy shift, but we'll have to see worse um, worse data to come. So undoubtedly, I think the, the big message we've said in other weeks is to say there are these relative value differences that are happening. So we talked about in the first question, services sector against manufacturing and globally, the US rates are likely to be going up before they get, go down. We'd like to see policy hikes. China, the, not only are policy rates being cut, but interest rates, bonds are already dropping quite fast. So, and growth is slowing. So, we are seeing this divergence between economies as well, which I think is really crucial. Um, so, for, for portfolios, maintaining that, looking for relative value decisions rather than these these sort of absolute time to buy everything, I think is really the mindset to have. It's it's more about the relative value and less about sort of buying buying markets. Perhaps it's a little bit speculative, Robert, but I wonder if we can just quickly weave in the geopolitical tension that there is with the the US and the West and the French shoring, the re-establishment of safe supply chains in the West, uh, particularly the semiconductor effort, for, well, for example, the semiconductor effort being undertaken in the US. To, to what extent do you think that Chinese fiscal, uh, well, also monetary decisions perhaps, might be affected by these geopolitical considerations? I mean, is it reasonable to say, for example, the Chinese rather like the idea of economic growth going a bit sort of slowly at the moment because that weakens the currency, which they know is a, a lever that they can use against the US? Or do you think those do you think those, these two things occupy separate paths? I don't think monetary policy and fiscal policy is, is being affected by um, geopolitics at the moment. Now, clearly, that's a ma- major issue. Now, there is this effort to try and reduce tensions a bit on both sides. So I think that both sides were a bit, you know, I think have been a bit shocked at how fast things have deteriorated. So they, they'd, like, they'd like a sort of a, a, some element of, of stabilization and that's one on the plus side for a case for investing in china things are beaten up so much that just even for having somewhat of a short-term floor in relations would provide quite a bit of support so you wouldn't even need that much stimulus to support financial assets if not the economy but i don't think they're pulling that that lever having said that i think that one of the big issues of the market today if we're considering in the past it was all about oil controlling oil and that was a a key component for um, growth, global growth, and still remains important. Now, the scarce asset clearly is semiconductors. And it's quite a key issue 
in that the supply chain is so, um, I'm, I'm trying to find the right word, but I think over-engineered, but it's so dependent, it's quite fragile in a way on the, the, these um, advanced manufacturing, particularly in Taiwan, that both sides, again, are trying to diversify. The US is trying to build capacity elsewhere. China, a big hit to their growth, more so than uh, the biggest part of the tension really is the West's efforts to try and stop them having a supply, ready supply of the advanced chips. And we see even more of that in the last week, trying to cut down on that supply. Now, the Chinese want to build up their supply elsewhere. I think that's where you might see more fiscal spending is to try and um, create create the sort of parallel system. But they're going to remain years behind. It takes a long time to build the capacity on both sides. And it's not just about putting in money. It just takes years to, to build. So I think if we're to say what is the biggest tension, which may lead spillover to the economic data and lead to more fiscal monetary action, I think if we're to take one segment, just the semiconductor cycle and reactions from both sides, I think that is the biggest sort of battleground on what we may see. But but for the time being, I think that, that schema of saying there'll probably be some policy support, but not enough in China, and growth will have to get a bit worse before we see uh, more support later in the year. I think that's a good base case for people, people to have in their minds. I think you've talked, Robert, about semiconductors being the the new oil, the key feedstock for the global economy in a way that oil was in a heavily industrialized economy. But let, let's let's go back to old-fashioned commodities and talk a little bit about those more material, arguably lower value inputs such as uh, oil and metals, which I, I think seem to be saying there's less rather than more good economic news ahead, one one seeing prices range trade or fall a bit rather than go up. Is, is that fair? Yes. So I think that the headline really, since the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, we had the spike and most commodities are off quite a long way. So there is a, a bear market in commodity prices. Now, part of that is some of the impacts of Russia-Ukraine crisis um, dissipating slightly. Some of the actions taken by Europe to wean themselves off of, of Russian gas. So that's part of it. But actually, I think it is responding to growth slowing. And as we talked about before, goods have slowed quite fast. So if you just look at the goods manufacturing sector, it is in recessionary type conditions. So it's not that much of a surprise that we've seen um, commodity prices trade off quite a bit in the last year or so. I think the important parts to it, though, are actually the supply-demand conditions across most commodities look quite tight, actually. Um, so the, the threat of higher commodity prices in the future, when we see better growth, is relatively elevated. And that's even in the oil sector. So I know a lot of big oil traders were expecting this spike back of oil prices this year. And we've seen famous names like Angerand sort of down 70% from, from the highs this year. So a lot of people are positioned on the plus side uh, for higher energy prices, which we haven't seen so far. So I think that, that there is a threat in the future uh, when you look at the, the supply demand. But actually, um, there's been a quite a lot of speculative pressure on the, um, on the shorting side, which is one of the issues. And if we break them down, I think energy market off the most maybe and you, you certainly need more demand for, for prices to go higher but if we look at agricultural commodities again they've stabilized a bit more than maybe some of the other sectors 
But the threat there is when we're looking at weather for for this year. So some of the El Nino effects, the threat of actually um, higher agricultural prices in the next year or so is is relatively elevated, and prices have not priced in the upside risk at the moment. So they've relatively stable and, and not sort of taken off to the upside. So for commodities, I think it is very much the threat of demand going down. So that that issue about recession is there. So that's the short term overhang that we can't get away from. There are some specific issues like weather for agricultural commodities, but you do need demand to increase for for sort of industrial metals and energy to to take off. But underneath the surface, we're setting ourselves up for medium term higher commodity prices. So when we get through to the next economic cycle, uh, actually, there has been this lack of investment and spending across many different commodities, uh, which is really going to be an issue and could be one of those inflationary pressures for the medium term. So I think that's very much where maybe com- commodities is a bit more, um, it is always an anticipatory asset. So it's looking at growth as it is at the moment rather than, uh, sorry, it's not an anticipatory asset like equities. It's looking at current growth, current conditions. So maybe that's pointing a bit towards um, some of the slowing growth that, that may feed through to the service sector. But the medium term risk for higher commodity prices and higher inflation remain intact. Does that mean that you're a buyer, Robert? Are we, do we think commodities, whether in aggregate or in particular cases, look good value on a reasonable horizon, given what you're saying about the, well, we know that <laughs> commodities are just highly cyclical, and now that we've had a bit of a downturn, we know with confidence there's going to be a sharp upturn and because that means that the lower prices have somewhat uh, restrained investment, it means that our ability to supply in the future is going to be constrained. So we'll see those very, very high prices you get as the market's way of signaling that we need to add productive capacity. Uh, are you a buyer or a watcher? Yeah, it's, it's not yet. So what have we done in portfolios? Um, last Q, Q1, Q2 last year, we sold all our commodity positions with this threat of higher threat of recession. And uh, to that first question, we haven't had the recession yet. So we're all talking about recession. It's still to come. So it's a bit too early to be buying commodities. I think you're seeing some of the pain on the, as I mentioned, some of those famous commodity traders are really um, under pressure. So we're building up for a moment where uh, actually when you go into the recession will be the moment you want to buy commodities and it will be a good portfolio hedge for a period of time. But it's just not quite yet. It would be the the fact we still have to tread our way into recession uh, first before before we can um, sort of look to the other side. So very much at the moment, it's still cautious for equities overall trying to maintain some of these relative value positions to make money. And the time to add those hedges and more inflationary hedges will be once we actually see growth itself sort of printing some of the recessionary prints that we're expecting to come. So we are at the halfway point of 2023 or ever so slightly past it. And if one were to go back to the beginning of 2023, our message to ourselves and that's our message to our clients was be cautious. There'll be better opportunities later. Uh, half a year's passed. We're still in the same place though, aren't we, Robert? Our, our message is be cautious. Keep looking for, as we always do, we keep looking for ways to be able safely to make money, but in the round be cautious because there will be more opportunities later. And, and, and you feel we're still there. I think Definitely. I think one of the investors' favourite friends is the ability to be patient. And what we've seen really is a lack of volatility 
um, so far this year in regards. And when you have conditions of low volatility, what it really means is time stretches out. So it's forcing investors to be more patient because although six months of calendar times happened, actually it, it's actually a far shorter period of market time. It's when markets are very volatile that time moves a lot quicker. So I think the watchword still remains, be patient, the opportunities will be um, will be coming in the future. So maintaining that pr protecting capital, look for relative value opportunities and, and be a bit patient, I think, are the watchwords for the rest of the year. Robert, thank you. So we will take a little bit of a break over the summer. So we will do these every four weeks. And so the next podcast will be out on four weeks time on the 3rd of August. Uh, in the meantime, wish you a happy summer and hope you'll join us then. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.